Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Alexander Jones for a conversation about what astronomy was like in Hellenistic and Roman Egypt. Dr. Jones is Leon Levy Director, Professor of the History of the Exact Sciences in Antiquity at New York University, based in the U.S., He's written many publications over his career, including authoring the book, A Portable Cosmos, Revealing the Antikythera Mechanism, Scientific Wonder of the Ancient World, which was published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to call, Alex. Thank you. Okay. So we're chatting about astronomy in Hellenistic and Roman Egypt today to create some background and context for everyone listening and for our chat, Alex. Can you share what uh, time frame roughly we should be focusing our conversation on? We're really talking about uh, what's going on in Egypt to do with uh, people studying and trying to use information coming from the, the stars from about the third century BCE through into later Roman Empire times. So we could say maybe fourth, fifth century CE. Okay, sounds Good. Um, at this point in time, since this chat's more about Egypt as, and at the time, uh, it's probably it's probably changed in normal terms, but we'll call it it we'll call it a country. Um, is back then in this period was Egypt still about the same demarcation as it would be now, or is the or was the geography uh, different in size? Not radically different, but one has to think of Egypt when you're talking about ancient Egypt especially, uh, I mean, you can draw lines on a map showing this huge sort of area, but it really focuses on the Nile Valley, the Nile Delta, uh, the oases. Uh, so it's, it's almost a one-dimensional country. Uh, right, right. Okay. Its southern limit is not very far from where it is now. Okay, somewhat the same. Okay. Um, can you define, how, how, how would a scholar define astronomy? Okay, well, the way I would do it, at least, I would say that when, when when we're talking about ancient astronomy, we're talking about people who are, or activities that involve studying and making use of what's observable about uh, heavenly bodies seen in the sky, mostly at night. There's also the sun in the daytime, and you get occasionally eclipses. Uh, and, I mean, along with it, you guess, get various forms of astrology, which are... Uh, attempts to connect that sort of observable or sometimes predictable behavior of heavenly bodies with uh, our human environment and human, human lives. And these are intertwined, but they are distinct things. In the Mediterranean basin, and we'll, and we'll get to where some of the technologies and um, how astronomy was thought about in this period where that might have come from, but in the Mediterranean basin, would Egypt have been the first place to adopt astronomy in history, or was there somewhere else in the basin? There really, there really are three sort of separate astronomical traditions that we know of from that general region of the world in antiquity. Uh, the one that really gets going in, a, in an elaborate and sophisticated way first is actually in Mesopotamia. Uh, in the uh, you know the Babylonians and for a while the Assyrians uh, who are doing astronomical stuff already early in the second millennium BCE 
and by the the sort of waning centuries of writing in cuneiform on clay tablets, uh, it's developed into a very uh, very mathematical astronomy that can calculate things like when is the moon going to have its uh, its you know, lunar crescent visible in the evening sky for the first time starting a month and so on, which is a very complicated problem. Uh, Egypt. Uh, Egypt's astronomy is maybe about as old, but it's a very different style of stuff. It's more connected with religion and mythology, uh, not so much in connection with mathematics and not so astrological. Uh, there, there's not a, a system for connecting phenomena in the heavens with predictions about human lives. Uh, and then much later, you get a Greek tradition, which uh, it really starts off with just trying to uh, define the constellations, connect them with patterns of weather through the year, uh, and and control calendars. Uh, because the Greeks, like Near Eastern peoples, used lunar calendars. And so they needed to have a way to keep their, their lunar months in line with the natural solar year which means you need, to, you need to develop ways of, of keeping the year lengths, either 12 months or 13 months, but so that on average, they keep uh, the right months in the right seasons. Okay. So the, the Greek astronomy is maybe the, the, the least elaborate at first. Eventually, it becomes the one that absorbs everything. Okay. And I think you also said um, Assyrian as well, right? Assyria? Yes. Okay. That's right. In this time period, would Assyria have gotten... In terms of astronomy as a nexus point for this topic, would would that have gotten close to the Mediterranean? Because I know Assyria was also a fairly big region. There, we don't really know much about contacts between Assyria and the and the Mediterranean proper for mm -hmm. astronomy. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we're talking when we're talking about the Assyrian stuff. It it, it reaches its peak and its end in the 7th century BCE. And that's when Assyria sort of just sort of wiped off the map as a distinct uh, uh, state. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they, the tradition continues in the south of Mesopotamia, a place like Babylon, where Babylon was a major center of, uh, of astronomical research, record keeping. Uh, they had a program of observation that recording sort of night by night what's going on with this moon and planets that went on for about six centuries. We have a, a lot of tablets that represent that archive. Okay. And parts of that were translated into Greek uh, at some point. Um, okay. And it's thought that um, Egypt, so Egyptian um, astronomy occurs before Greek astronomy? Oh, yeah. There, there's Egyptian astronomy back in the second millennium. Uh, what you see, you see things like uh, uh, there are royal tombs that have astronomical ceilings with the images connected with constellations and lists of groups of stars that uh, you know rise in succession through the night, and you can divide the night into parts by keeping track of which constellation is rising at any particular mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of it is connected with time reckoning um, and. Uh, and as I say, with, with religion and especially funerary cult. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, can you speak more about astronomy then in Egypt in this time period? You mean in the uh, when we get into the Greek and Roman times? Yeah, yeah, in the The really interesting thing here is that you get cross-cultural contact and influence in a really big way. Uh, we, do, we don't have uh, very much of the immediate evidence for how this happened. 
but we see the result. And, mm -hmm. and where do we see the result? It's in um, various kinds of manuscript that are recovered through archaeology from sites in Egypt. Uh, in uh, the major type is fragments of papyrus rolls, mm. uh, which were used both for writing in Greek and writing in the late form of Egyptian, most, mostly the Demotic Egyptian script, which is the, the last of the major Egyptian scripts before Coptic comes in, which is mostly for Christian literature. Uh, so, uh, and the other, the other major form of, of written materials that we get from sites is ostraca, which are just bits of broken pottery that have been used as writing material. Uh, the ostraca are particularly important for the Egyptian language stuff, uh, which for astronomy, that's being done, as far as we can tell, mostly or entirely in the context of Egyptian temples that are, uh, there are still very lively places right up to the third century CE. Uh, Particularly, well, in parts of Egypt, like the Fayum Oasis, which is this sort of uh, uh, quite well-watered area to the west of the Nile, but south of the Delta, and there are, there were several cities there with major temples, and from uh, two or three of these, we have uh, uh, a lot of written records, which are mostly these ostraca that are indicating that uh, these temples were doing a big business in astrology. And to do that, they needed astronomical tools, how to calculate the where, where the sun and the moon and the planets were on somebody's birth date. Uh, and uh, what we're finding with that, and also with parallel material in Greek, that's coming from Greek cities like Oxyrhynchus, which is a bit further south, mm -hmm. uh, is that it was at least initially basically a transportation of the Babylonian mathematical astronomy. Uh, and somehow then, some experts who knew that kind of thing, who knew these numerical algorithms for calculating lunar and planetary phenomena uh, spread around the Eastern Mediterranean. It wasn't just Egypt. We know, we know people were going, people who at least called themselves uh, Babylonians or Chaldeans uh, were coming to Greece, were coming to Italy. Uh, but it's from Egypt that we see the direct evidence for this in that they, they, that's the impact they have on the whole nature of what astronomy is. It becomes this kind of toolbox for predicting stuff. Um, and uh, along with that, the, the huge growth of personal astrology, where people are, are trying to get some kind of advice about how to live um, from people who know how to uh, come up with some kind of an interpretation of the where everything is in the zodiac at the moment of birth. So and that's fusing this Babylonian stuff with with the, uh, the very Egyptian attention to the exact time of day that someone is born, or or time of night. Okay, and so yeah, so we're in this uh, somewhat third century BCE through um, fifth century um, CE. So those those centuries. Um, so what was the religious orientation for the most part in Egypt at this point? Well, there, there, there is the, the Egyptian religion, which has a lot of localized uh, varieties. I mean, you, you know, when, when you read, you know, popular descriptions of Egyptian religion, you know about the, the major divinities like Osiris, Isis, and so on. Um, but also there were local gods or local manifestations of gods often connected with local animals. So for example, in these uh, in these towns in the Fayum where the temples doing astrology were, uh, the temples would often be centers of worship for a, a, a local version of the crocodile divinity. 
uh, and uh, and the names of the, uh, the the names of the places sometimes are connected with that. Uh, you know, the is a, is a Greek uh, city name that means crocodile city, for example. Mm. Uh, so so you have that uh, mixed in with this, and maybe more in the Greek urban communities. You have the uh, the, the sort of Greco-Roman pantheon, and then Christianity is is spreading in Egypt. This is one of the places where Christianity really gets a, a an early foothold already say in the, I guess in the second century CE. But you don't see that very much in the kind of material I'm talking about until you get very late. Okay. When, when you get into say around the, the fourth century CE, then you have horoscopes cast for people who are clearly, who have Christian names that presumably are Christians. Uh, there doesn't seem to have been a conflict, but uh, at least at the, at, the, at the level of ordinary people between uh, trusting an astrologer and being a Christian. Uh, the, the church, based in, you know, we had centered in Constantinople, had a different idea about that, but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to paint a picture here, because um, you mentioned that uh, the practice of astronomy had happened a lot in temples. Um, yes. F- based on what scholars know, can you describe it a, a, a little bit? So, and this might dovetail nicely into equipment that's also being used in this in this time. So you have a temple. So what what can what is it? Is there a spot in the temple that is purposely architected uh, to facilitate the ability to see the sky clearly? And then what what uh, what type of equipment is being used in this period? Okay, well, that's, uh, I mean, there are a few complications of that question, but let, let me start with the, the if, I, if I can just pop back to the Babylonians for a moment, mm-hmm. because there it's also a temple-based situation for the people who are doing the astronomy in, say, Babylon. Uh, so these are people who are, you know, temple-employed people uh, with positions funded from land holdings. They're like endowed positions that they have to qualify for. Mm-hmm. And they obviously they did have uh, a routine of going out at night and watching for certain things and recording it. So there must have been some good place, maybe maybe an elevated place so you don't get the skyline. Um, when you get the transpor- transporting of this tradition to Egypt, it's become much more of a kind of day job thing because uh, instead of observing uh, on a regular basis, they are calculating. The, the, the ways of predicting all these observable things have become so established that people use tables and almanacs. They, do, they don't go out. But there also are, you know, there, there also are people who are more like scientific astronomers, probably not a huge number of them. And probably not in these temples, but uh, people like Ptolemy, the, the, the most famous sort of astronomer of Roman times, who lived in Alexandria, and he has instruments. He, he, he has some quite quite complex instruments uh, with bronze rings that are designed so that you can um, you can you can sight say a star and the moon and tell how many degrees apart they are in the coordinate system that the astronomers want to operate in, which is not just the natural horizon one. Um, and so that, that's a very sophisticated technology for, for observing. And that's being used to revise the theories and improve the predictive methods. Um, so so Ptolemy uh, is really important in the uh, history of, of astronomy in, in the Greek tradition um, for turning observations, his own and earlier people's, into quantitative and predictive theories. But he's also producing from those theories tables, which clearly caught on very quickly because we have papyrus fragments of these tables from within uh, within a century of his lifetime uh, that are uh, that, that are 
circulating and being used as the toolbox for horoscope casting and things like that. And mm. that, 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 that tradition is gradually pushing out the more Babylonian one. Uh, so by the time you get into the, around the end of the fourth, fifth century, uh, Ptolemy is sort of won out and he becomes the foundation of medieval astronomy, whether we're talking about Islamic astronomy or uh, Western European, later medieval, uh, getting into people like Copernicus and Kepler. They, they, they are building on Ptolemy. So the, you know, the really big heritage from, from Greco-Roman Egypt is there, uh, but it's all built on this ultimately Babylonian Egyptian mix, which sort of got lost. I mean, we, we, you know, we've, we're only rediscovering this stuff uh, through the archaeology of the last century and a half or so, and for the Egypt, particularly very recent discoveries. And I want to go back to Ptolemy in a moment, but I want to ask about the importing of the knowledge to Egypt, because that's come up a few times in your in yes. your answers. So what's what's known about the the importing of equipment and knowledge from a place like Babylon to to Egypt? Yeah, probably not much in the way of equipment, because what gets what gets transported is this more mathematical predictive side. Uh, and so I, I think you could imagine, say, a scholar who had been trained in one of the Babylonian temples and doing that kind of astronomy mm -hmm. would probably have a fair bit of it memorized. But also, you know, what we have from those temples is the clay tablets are the written records of this mm -hmm. stuff. But there must have been other media that were being used as well. We have clay tablets because they survived well from particular sites. But there are, you know, and, and they're written in the cuneiform writing, which by that point is a, this is a really pretty archaic way of writing in languages, that, well, in language that was no longer actually spoken by anybody. Uh, it, it's, it's like what Latin became for Europe in, the, in modern times. Um, but it, but it's not just a, it's not just the language; it's also the writing system. These you know these stylus marks on clay that's just not used anymore by anybody after about the end of the first century CE. And the last people using it are astronomers. Uh, but you can also you you can as long as you have a notation for numbers um, and you have some way of writing them down and doing arithmetic, you can translate this sort of uh, astronomical. I can call it a technology, but it's not a technology of objects and tools and instruments and the technology of, of ways of calculating things um, involves, for example, using base 60 for calculating with fractions, uh, which is something that gets associated very strongly with astronomy. Um, and we still use it because we, we divide angles into degrees, minutes and seconds and hours into minutes and seconds. We, that's basically Babylonian base 60 uh, that, that has survived through astronomy. Uh, so, uh, I, I like to say, you know, sounding a little bit anachronistic, but what was transported probably could have fitted in a suitcase quite comfortably. Uh, this, is, this is not a major moving operation. But the question of who's doing it, when exactly does it happen? We don't have the evidence for that now, or at least very little. Do we know if Egyptian people were actually, if they actually went to Babylon and were trained for a while in astronomy, and then they'd come back? No, we don't know that. My, my, my guess would be the reverse process, that it's people coming out of Mesopotamia rather than, uh, rather than people traveling to Mesopotamia. Uh, but that is okay. really just my inclination. It's not very well backed up with evidence. I, mean, I, I can give you one example of a piece of evidence, but it's not from Egypt. 
and it, it's uh, it, it's it's a, an inscri- a Greek inscription, you know, carved on stone that was found, I guess, about 20, 30 years ago in uh, north central mainland Greece. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these honorific inscriptions where some somebody is being given uh, honors by the local city government for some services to the community. But in this case, it's a it's, it's a, a guy who is is called a Chaldean, which means a Babylonian uh, astronomos, which you can translate as an astronomer or an astrologer. And he comes from some place in Syria, uh, not actually from Mesopotamia, but you're more than halfway there already. So I think this in itself, even though just one uh, artifact, one inscription, uh, probably illustrates the kind of process we have, a kind of diaspora of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I will get back to Ptolemy, I promise. But I want to, I want to go to um, what. So what are they? What do you think they're getting at, or or trying to get at with the practice of astronomy in Egypt? Because you mentioned different areas, there was different goals. Like one was more mathematical, one was more um, uh, religious base. So in Egypt in this time period, um, what do you think they were really trying to get at with practicing astronomy? On the one hand, they are preserving and maintaining the traditional learning. And when, when you get something like uh, parts of a library from one of these temples, and one of, one of the cities in the Fayum that we have material from, Teptunis, what we have is a lot of, of scraps from the temple library. And part of that is the is preserving the old Egyptian sort of mythical type of astronomy. Uh, you, you get on, written on papyrus texts, basically the same text that you find on the uh, written on the on you know on the walls of royal tombs from more than a thousand years earlier. Uh, but this is combined with this, this new thing, I mean, new to Egypt, which is uh, astrology. I mean, really, astrology not fundamentally very different from the astrology that's in, around today, which is about mostly about horoscopes. There are other things as well. There's, a, there's, a, there's an astrology that deals with the bigger scale stuff, like what's this year going to be like in terms of crops? What's the Nile flood going to be like? Uh, what are going to be events on this kind of national scale? Things that affect king and kingdom, so to speak. Uh, that's sort of macroscopic astrology, but the the really big business is the personal stuff, and this seems to just it, it seems to, for Egypt it just seems to come out of nowhere around the second century BCE, and by the time you get into the CE centuries, it's uh, it's a it's a really big thing. We have we have, we have over two hundred ancient horoscopes of individuals on uh, pieces of papyrus and on on these clay. Uh, most of them in Greek, uh, but quite a lot also in demotic. Uh, so the, the clients are Greek-speaking people, they're Egyptian-speaking people, uh, and probably pretty nearly any level of society. Uh, I mean, we, of course, we know from the historians that, that even Roman emperors consulted astrologists. If in, in these parts of Egypt, you're not going to get that level of society, but uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really, really big thing. So where where does the line get drawn in your opinion then um, for the sake of definitions? At what point does astronomy become astrology? Is it when you make predictions about the future based on what you observe? Is that the point or somewhere else? There's a fuzzy line because you know the, it, it, the practice of astrology is mostly in, in ancient times was mostly about 
predictions there's sort of personal ones uh like you know what what's your character going to be like are you how long are you going to live that are you going to get sicknesses and if so how old will you be when that happens uh also advice about what you should do like should i marry and so on uh and then of course this this bigger scale national kind of astrology um but but one one way of looking at astrology that's an ancient point of view and i'm i'm going to come back to Ptolemy here because this is the way yeah, he did we're getting back to Ptolemy. Uh, we're doing it <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to keep him off the thing. Uh, but, but, but Ptolemy, Ptolemy wrote, wrote a lot of books on astronomy which are absolutely top level for, for their time i mean these are the classics of scientific uh mathematical astronomy um but he also wrote a treatise on astrology where he's trying to reform the subject he doesn't reject it but he thinks that the traditions of astrology need to be brought into line with the understanding of the way the cosmos works is coming out of greek philosophy in his time which is not at all like modern physics by the way it's all hot cold wet dry stuff uh that's kind of qualitative influences and he thinks that astrology is a perfectly reasonable thing and he'll point out that if we if we basically think of astrology as the the effects of powers of causation that heavenly bodies have on the world below the level of the moon uh where you get all the earth air fire and water all mixed together and everything sort of churning about and we have living things up in the heavens we have utter regularity and a different kind of matter that doesn't undergo qualitative change ever it just moves around in circles uh, so so ptolemy basically defines astrology as anything that that upper world does physically to the world below which then you can make predictions about um, and that would include even just the annual cycle of weather he thinks that simply knowing that summer is going to be warmer than winter is a kind of astrology a really basic kind but it's part of the it's it's part of the evidence that astrology is a reasonable kind of a thing that he, he brings in in introducing the subject uh, and and you know tides are clearly correlated with the face of the moon he knows that uh, there were also a lot of things like agricultural beliefs which were just taken as fact like that the you know if, if you want to prune your vines you should be watching the phase of the moon to decide the right point to do it uh, which i mean even now farmers still do that kind of thing though you go to a, an academic agriculture department and they'll say this is all nonsense but uh but all that biodynamic wine out there is full of that kind of thing which is very ancient and uh, so Ptolemy, uh, we're back there now. Um, okay. <laughs> is there, you mentioned a few things that he wrote, wrote about. Is there any major discoveries that uh, he had that's noteworthy and worth mentioning? Uh, I, I'd say he, he's, he's more about methodology than particular discoveries. Um, <laughs> but one where, he, you know, one where he does explicitly take credit for detecting an effect and uh and, and figuring out how you can explain it in terms of some kind of uh, motions up in the heavens uh and i think that this will just illustrate the, the the level that astronomy has reached at that point um is that up to that point it was known that if you if you track the moon traveling through the zodiac uh, night by night that it seems to speed up and slow down and uh, there, there's a kind of periodicity to that which is 27 and a fraction days the babylonians know that the Greeks know that before Ptolemy's time, they have very good figures for that cycle's length, uh, which you know basically accurate. If you can project for centuries and be accurate for that, Ptolemy discovers that there's a second effect that is on the order of a couple of degrees at most in the moon's position, which is correlated with the phase of the moon. And he he seems to have been the first person actually to detect this, um, and, and also to find a way that you can 
basically predict the size of that effect for any date. And this is, this is not a trivial thing to do because anytime you're trying to cite the moon's position, um, the moon is so close to the earth that you have to take account of where you are on the earth to sort of correct what you're, the direction you're looking at for the fact that you're in Alexandria and not at the center of the earth, which is the center of the universe for the ancient Greeks. Um, so he has to sort of filter out that from all these observations and then find out, you know, not just that there are discrepancies between what the theories are saying and what he's seeing, but also what the pattern is. Um, so that's, that's the, the, the one sort of astronomical fact that I, I, I would give that he really says was his own. There are others that people uh, think he may have been the discoverer of, but he doesn't say so. Um, but but the, the other thing, there's an awful lot in him about packaging information too. And this is, this is another side of his work that I think uh, even people who know parts of Ptolemy aren't so aware of. Uh, he's, he basically is the invention of digitizing images, for example. Uh, he, he wrote a book on cartography, on making maps of large scale maps. I mean, maps that show the entire known part of the world from the Atlantic Ocean to China, because they, at the, his time in the Roman Empire, people, or some people, actually had some geographical knowledge that went that far and that went south of the equator in Africa and parts. Um, so he wants to be able to make pictures of this, this kind of thing as sort of, you know, mathematically structured maps. But he's very aware that once you've made a picture like that, which has got maybe 8,000 places on it, probably too big to put on just on a piece of virus, you put it on a wall or some big surface. Um, but uh, if somebody wants to copy it, anytime you copy a picture just by looking at it and through drawing what you see, you're going to get distortions. So he, he basically digitizes his map, uh, turns it into a kind of coordinate list and says, you know, for the coastlines, you join up the points with these coordinates and for the mountains, you put them this way and so on. And so we have manuscripts from more than a thousand years after his time that preserve this digitized form. Of course, there are errors there, there's noise, but it's very different from the kinds of errors that you get from, from copying pictures. It's more like numbers miscopied and so on. Uh, I think that that's, uh, a, a very innovative idea that you can take visual information and turn it into text and number that way. Do you think that then astronomy, his practice of astronomy informed his practice of um, being a, a cartographer? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, re the very reason he got into cartography was because he, wa he wanted to be sure that people who used his tables for whatever purpose, whether it's to do astronomical research or to do astrology, would be able to do that no matter where they were. Uh, and that means you need to you need you need to know what are the adjustments for uh, time zone difference. You know, if, if you're using his tables in Spain or in a, in some other longitude, you need to, you need to have some estimate of how many hours difference that is. And also latitude matters because the parts of the sky that are going to be above the horizon change. So, so he, when he when he did his big astronomical book, which is sort of his, his probably his first really big production, is the astronomical treatise that we call the Almagest, a huge, you know, eight hundred pages in a modern translation. Um, but he, when he gets to the geographical aspect of astronomy, he says a really useful thing would be a table of places and their coordinates. And I'll do that later. <laughs> and sure enough, he did it later. And he starts reading up on all the best cartographic literature of his time um, and, and realizes that there are a lot of problems with it. So he, he then takes off on that subject in its own right. 
Uh, but but the there there is this problem though that um, to, he knows that if you really want to know where places are on the Earth accurately, you should be getting that by using astronomical observation. You you get your latitude by observing what's the altitude of the sun at noon on an equinox, for example, or what's the altitude of the North Pole, you know, the, the North Pole star. Um, but nobody doing that. And the time zone difference is the only way you can actually get those astronomically is to, to get two people in different places watching the same eclipse of the moon and writing down the local time that they see it happen, which is because that's the local time is time relative to local noon or midnight. So so if, if you have, say, two hours apart in the recorded time, that's 30 degrees longitude roughly. Uh, but again, nobody's doing it. So when he, he gathers the data for the map, he, he has to say, well, I have to use the best I've got, which is the other sorts of sources, you know, records of travel, uh, data about the Roman road system, uh, that kind of material, which he, he knows is just not as good. What kind of equipment was used uh, to practice astronomy in this period? Uh, to, to, to do the, the more scientific end of stuff? Uh, oh. Either, yeah, e either or. It's a broad, broad question. Um, I guess what was on my mind was the actual if telescopes existed and how sophisticated. No, there, they there, there are no, no, nothing using lenses. It's all sort of naked eye. But the there are instruments that are designed to help you get directions accurately in various ways, ranging from you know fairly simply designed things to do, for example, to measure the you know how how many degrees above the horizon is the sun at noon. Uh, for that, what you need is something a bit like a flat wall with uh, a quarter of a circle divided into degrees and a little shadow casting state. Uh, and and the, the point of the design is not to be sophisticated, it's to be accurate. Uh, so that, that's at the simpler end. And then the more complicated end is something like that armillary sphere thing I was mentioning before, where you have, say, uh, you know, seven bronze rings nested one inside each other, all of them engraved with degrees in various ways. And so you have to manipulate these rings to line up with the, the main circles that are imagined up in the sky. Uh, and that, that kind of thing, you'd need a pretty good specialized metal worker to do something like that well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, but probably not many people did that. We do have material culture of ancient astronomy, but it's at the, it's at the user, you know, the popular user end. It's things like ancient sundials, lots of ancient sundials, a lot of which are pretty crude affairs, but a few of them are very carefully constructed geometrical things where somebody has taken the part of astronomy that tells you about sundials, which is the part about the, the paths of the sun through the day and the year, um, and turned them into... Uh, how do you draw the lines or inscribe the lines on a stone surface that's of a particular shape? Most of them are not flat sundials. You know, modern sundials mostly are these horizontal things that you see in people's gardens. Uh, ancient Greek sundials mostly were sort of had kind of bowl-shaped surfaces that the shadow would be cast on. Or sometimes you'd have a spherical shell that was facing down with a little eye hole that the sunlight comes through. So there's no shadow. You get a little spot of sunlight that's moving on the surface and there are these engraved lines which are pretty fancy mathematical curves um, that represent the division into hours and the times of year. So people, you know, ordinary people saw that end of astronomy everywhere. Um, you know, not just in major cities and not just in public places, but private gardens, Roman forts, everywhere there would be sundials. And so that was probably the most common popular exposure to astronomy. Yeah, and if you were to summarize uh, for someone that is not a specialist in astronomy, how, how would you summarize what sundials were most used for? 
Well, they, they, they serve two, two functions in the ancient sundial. One is telling the time of day, dividing the day into, they, they divide, divided the day into 12 hours from sunrise to sunset, so-called seasonal hours. So they're, they're different lengths at different times of year. And the idea with a Greek sundial is that you're, you're designing the geometry to do that division so that in any single day, those hours are all exactly equal. That, that idea of dividing the day into 12 parts is actually an ancient Egyptian one. But the Egyptians didn't really worry about getting all the hours equal even within a day. Uh, they just want to divide the day into 12 parts. Uh, Greeks are thinking very mathematically about this. Uh, so so that's, that's obviously the most practical side, though there's a kind of interplay between, you know, daily life for the, for the ancient Greeks didn't initially use hours at all. It's only when the sundials start coming in that people start thinking of dividing the day into what the sundials are showing them. And instead of just saying, well, meet in the morning, say, well, meet at the third hour of day. Uh, the Romans take it even further, and the and Romans are really paying attention to times, even to fractions of an hour sometimes. Uh, but sometimes also show you the time of year, but you sort of know that already. So it's, it's, it's sort of confirming, it, it's, it's part of this sort of scientific teaching side of sundials rather than the practical side to show you that you're, in, you're at the stage of the year when the sun enters Capricorn, say. Um, which some of the sundials do. They don't just show you the equinoxes and the solstices, but they show the, the, the zodiacal divisions of the year. So I think there's a sort of connection with astrology there too. And now we have derivatives of that technology. Some of us wear it on our wrists, and we also yes. have uh, devices that uh, tell us what time of day. Yeah. But, but of course, a, a radical change yeah. has happened in the way time is defined, because in, in antiquity, it was defined by astronomical phenomena. Uh, and it became, it, it has become now something defined by physical phenomena. I mean, the, the, the fundamental unit of time in modern uh, time reckoning is the second, not the day. Uh, and the second is defined in terms of a particular wavelength of radiation of a particular atom excited in a particular way in atomic clocks. So the interesting thing is that there's, there, there may be a change back happening because it's now realized that certain pulsars are even more accurate than atomic clocks. So uh, there, there's a kind of going back to using astronomical uh, observation as a basis for time, but it's not the local Earth-centered observation anymore. It's distant uh, stuff, uh, you know, many light years away, not uh, not in the immediate solar system. Um, forward thinking from this point, um, where and when do you think the work that was done in Egypt in this period most influenced? the next stage of evolution in astronomy. Okay, so so in, in, in the later, later centuries of the first millennium CE, Ptolemy's astronomy becomes the springboard for Islamic astronomy as a kind of researching and developing science. Uh, and that goes on for several centuries in, in mostly in the Arabic language. And then in Europe, in the later Middle Ages and the early scientific revolution, again, Ptolemy is hugely influential as a starting point. Kepler, Kepler's whole way of arriving at elliptic orbits for planets is taking Ptolemy as the starting point, almost more than Copernicus. Uh, Kepler was a Copernican, but he thought that actually when it comes to understanding the, the sort of speed in which a planet goes around its orbit, which is getting toward the second, Kepler's second law, um, that, that Ptolemy is the one who's got it right, and a lot of great later astronomers like Copernicus got it wrong. Um, so up to then the early 1600s, you can say that, that you have periods in which Ptolemy is, is still a really author of living importance for, for his astronomical work. 
This is probably a good spot then to wrap up the conversation. It's been enjoyable speaking with you today, Alex. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Jones authored, A Portable Cosmos, Revealing the Antikythera Mechanism, Scientific Wonder of the Ancient World. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Alex and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.